This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's ELAB Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Our guest in this interview is Eleanor Stein, an expert with America's Power Plan. Welcome, Eleanor, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So you've had a long and colorful career, including working for many years to advance energy transition as a way of addressing the challenge of climate change. You helped develop New York State's renewable portfolio standard, its energy efficiency portfolio standard, and you managed New York's ambitious Reforming the Energy Vision initiative, or REV, which seeks to rewrite the rules of the utility business in the state of New York to create a more customer-centered, renewable, and distributed energy future. On top of all that, you're on the board of directors of EcoViva, a solidarity project in the U.S. working with rural community organizers in El Salvador on climate adaptation and sustainable agriculture projects. So there's really no end of things we could talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Your pick. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'd like to start with this philosophical question then, because I think it really gets to the heart of the matter. It's often been said that in order to have peace, we must first have justice. So along that same line of thinking, can we have a successful response to climate change and can we really achieve energy transition without also having true energy democracy? Or is it imperative for citizens to be directly and personally invested and involved in energy transition efforts in their local areas? That's a great question. I think that you could theoretically have a transition to a fully decarbonized electric industry simply by mobilizing large corporations to change their usage patterns, 
getting the utilities on board either by law or by bribery in the form of subsidies and rate devices. And possibly you could achieve those ends. But I think there's a couple of problems. One is that in the distributed system that we're really envisioning, that's the work of Rocky Mountain Institute and was the work of New York Rev and what's going on in California and so many other places, we're moving actually toward a really a disaggregated electric system where usage and decisions are going to be made on a much more local basis. And in order to build a distributed energy system, you need support from communities that are going to host those facilities. And you can only get that support if there's an understanding on the part of those communities of the need for these facilities. So you can't really build a distributed economy by fiat. You have to there's an element in it that is from the ground up. And you know, I'm not saying it'll necessarily be a democratic system, but it, I think it creates the conditions for a more democratized system. And I think we also need a political base for decarbonization, especially going into the new administration, where clearly you know, it's a petroleum-based administration and philosophy. So I think the need for a political base for fighting climate change and a democratic economic base for a distributed system go hand in hand. What about the, the justice aspect of it? I mean, do you see that as being an important element in energy transition? You know, for me, it's a critical element. You know, I think this is obviously a global issue. It's not just a U.S. issue. And globally, it's clear that climate change is a uniquely kind of emblematic of the wages of sin of uh, imperialism and capitalism and the divide of wealth and poverty. So we have a global crisis that's the result of the development path of the most developed and wealthiest countries in the world. And we have the poorest countries in the world who contributed the least to the problem are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the climate catastrophe the most severely. Look at the Philippines, you look at Haiti, you look at Chile, you look at Southeast Asia, you know, Katrina is the perfect example. So globally, that dichotomy is, can't stand. And even though we're seeing a setback, not just in the U.S., but in the U.K., and I think in large parts of Europe, governments that were engaged in the fight against climate change have been basically overthrown in one form or another. I think that the arc of history is going in the direction of climate justice and opposition to climate change and climate action. Yeah. Uh, I hope. <laughs> well, I, I think it's great that you uh, interpreted that question in a global scope because I think that's a really important element. I was actually originally thinking of it more as a domestic question. Energy access and the availability of clean energy versus exposure to dirty energy as a justice question domestically. Uh, no, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a profound question domestically. And I find it heartbreaking to see people in Kentucky and West Virginia demanding a resurgence of the coal industry because yeah. it's, it's got to be the worst, the worst place to work in America and the most dangerous and the most long-term lethal for those communities. There's a lot of communities in upstate New York who survive on state prisons. That's the only industry in town. That's where everybody is employed. And these are terrible ways to organize communities. They're deadly environmentally. They're deadly as a health matter. They're spirit killing for the people who do them. So I think that there is a, a potential to take the values of renewable energy and a renewable-based economy and see a lot of potential for 
improvement in our communities in all kinds of ways. And I think that the strikingly, the forces that really, in my view, have been leading the fight against climate change. You look at the Native Americans at Standing Rock. You look at community organizations in the urban centers that grew up after Katrina, for example, have really led the redevelopment in New Orleans in an equitable way and are demanding an equitable transition economy. And I think those forces are going to grow, and maybe they'll even grow more robustly in a Trump era where their needs are going to be addressed even less than they have been in the past. Mm. I mean, I'll just tell you one quick story. I was at the, a meeting in Brooklyn in the, the spring of 2014 in a storefront meeting at a community organization called Uprose. It's United Puerto Ricans of Sunset Park. And um, there was a speaker from the Niger Delta who was the head of a Pan-African climate change organization. There were about 50 people there, some really community people, and he came in and said, okay, folks, there's going to be a big gathering, a summit at the UN in September, this is 2014, on climate change, and all the heads of state in the world are going to be there. And this is a tremendous opportunity for you in New York to organize some kind of protest to indicate that the people of the United States support strong action on climate change. And it was out of that little storefront meeting that the People's Climate Justice March of September 2014 that put uh, 400,000 people into the streets of New York was born. And the environmental justice groups really led that march. They had Native Americans in the front line and, and those organizations. So I think that flavor and that you know recognition that this was a historic moment, which was really the leadership of these communities, you know, they were mothers with babies in, in baby carriages and elderly people and unions and teachers and people came from all over the world. So it's a broad vision, but it has that core of it, which I think is very important. You know, it's hard to not think here of the Dakota Access Pipeline and the protest at Standing Rock in the context of what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, that's really, I think it has sparked the imagination and, and the concern of people in a very broad Spectrum. I mean, 2,000 veterans came to put their bodies as a cordon sanitaire between the Native American leaders and the police. President Obama has responded to that. Of course, we'll see whether the Army Corps decision survives January 20th. It's hard to believe that it will. But it's a, it's a great moment. It's a great victory. Let's savor it while we have it. <laughs> okay. So... You know, Superstorm Sandy, I think, was a real wake-up call for New Yorkers in terms of energy transition. How do you think it changed what's considered to be politically possible in New York's energy transition efforts? You're absolutely right. It was a tremendous wake-up call. I work closely with a lot of climate scientists, and they've always said, in kind of in despair, it's going to take massive disasters in the United States to wake this country up because... Mm. We don't really care what happens in, right. uh, you know, to low-lying Pacific Island nation states. Although the Hawaiians do care and have been a real force in support of those states. No, it was a tremendous wake-up call. And for the first time in my work in New York state government, which was about 25 years, the words climate change became part of the explicit discourse. And the governor was calling for action on climate change and you know, it really changed his attitude, and he saw it. I mean, how could you not? You know, Lower Manhattan was without power for nine days. 
the, subway the damage. Was underwater and subway was underwater. Fifty people died in New York State. There were other deaths in New Jersey and other places. And the other thing that's very important about that event is that, strikingly and visibly, in the parts in Lower Manhattan, so it was below 39th Street, it was dark for about nine days. And but there were points of light. So there's Solar One was a community solar project on the Lower East Side that kept the lights on. There were some hospitals with combined heat and power systems that were the hospitals that were up and running. I mean, it was late October. It was very cold. So uh, other hospitals in the region were evacuating to those hospitals. So it was one of these teachable moments for the value of distributed energy in a moment of crisis for the grid. And these centers became known as the centers of refuge. And they were the places that had renewable energy or combined heat and power that could survive the storm. So that also gave those technologies a real boost and those industries and the proponents were able to say, look, here's... It works. It works. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be more microgrids and that kind of thing as a result of Superstorm Sandy? There already is a tremendous, tremendous increase. I was working at the time, I was an administrative law judge at the PSC, and Con Edison came in in January with a rate case, and they had a request for about $1 billion in what they called storm hardening, which was their response to Sandy. And their plans were very much, let's take our infrastructure and raise it off the ground a little bit and build the walls a little higher. And very soon the commission recognized that there was a much broader set of issues on the table as a result of Sandy and commenced a um, collaborative track to look at resilience. And that became a Con Ed resiliency process that went on for about a year. And I uh, was the facilitator for that collaborative. It was New York City, unions, environmental organizations, academia, climate scientists. I mean, it was an outpouring, uh, financiers, to participate in this project and really look at not just planning for the last storm, but looking ahead to what we anticipate climate change impacts might be on New York City. And the outcome of this collaborative was a whole plan for Con Edison and a plan for the city, one aspect of which, which I particularly liked, was a Con Edison entered into an agreement with the Earth Institute at Columbia with their scientists to do a climate change impact study for their infrastructure from, I think it's from now through the end of the century. So this will be really the first time where utilities, which are, you know, kind of notoriously quarter-to-quarter planners, are looking at really long-term planning, not from the point of view of our guide to what the next 30 years is the last 30 years. Nothing could be further from the truth right now. The past is really no guide to the future. But the scientists have a tremendous amount of data to contribute, and they will be doing that. Well, on that topic, I wonder how New York City in particular is going to deal with the storm surge threat in the future as sea levels continue to rise. Could be that Superstorm Sandy was just a taste of things to come. You know, I I guess the obvious first solution that people talk about is a a giant seawall, but it would be massively expensive, and that would have to overcome, obviously, a lot of technical and practical problems. What are your thoughts about that? And even if that's not the right solution, you know, what are the solutions and how are we going to pay for it? Well, um, the city has been doing a lot of planning 
And there's a lot of issues that are very controversial. And it's a very, very complex issue, not just for New York, obviously, but you know, for cities all over the world. And I think New York spent a lot of time in Amsterdam, <laughs> which has been fighting this for 500 years and really understands how to be a, a city. After all, it was new Amsterdam, wasn't it? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and it's looking a lot like old Amsterdam. So, you know, they have floating cities. But here are some of the complexities. So it turns out that building walls, everything else aside, is just not a particularly effective method. And the reason is that you know, every time you build a wall in one area, when you're in a coastal area, you're creating a pattern, you're changing the patterns of tides, of deposition of silt, of the grasses and the reeds and the animals that live, you know, and stabilize the shoreline. Every wall creates a flood zone at the other end of the wall. And so there are a lot of proponents who are urging that a soft barriers, as they call them, are more effective. So there's a plan to revive New York City's oyster beds, wow. which were historically one of New York's great uh, right. natural resources yeah. and haven't been around for 150 years or so. New York City's current plan, I believe, is a combination of walls in certain places where they're strategic and then natural barriers where they're strategic. The other issue, which is tremendously controversial and difficult and painful, is the question of retreat. So there are areas in the city where the city's policy has been not to not to provide funds for rebuilding in areas that were destroyed based on the analysis that these areas were just going to be vulnerable mm. for the foreseeable future. Mm. And instead to compensate homeowners to actually buy the houses yeah. and compensate owners and enable them to relocate. Michael Bloomberg, who was a very, very visionary mayor on climate change issues and is now a real global leader on climate change issues. On the one hand, on the other hand, was kind of a real estate developer at heart. Yeah. And he, he did not support a retreat uh, huh. position at all. He hated it. But I, in my view, it's not just sensible, it's the only thing that makes economic sense and, and kind of equity sense, because you're saying our whole society is going to subsidize these hundred houses on the beach, uh, which are doomed anyway and we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars protecting them. So right. so when you look at a city and you look at the floodplain maps, you have to say there are areas that are really not defensible over time. And what do you do? These are populations. These are communities. We sort of have our own Pacific low-lying island states in you know Queens and Staten Island. What are we going to do with them? Right. Really tough right. question. So do you think that that approach of using sort of natural barriers is really going to become the dominant response to the rising sea level issue? Uh, my sense as a layperson and looking at it is that the, the current thinking is pretty much um, all of the above. So we need, there are places where walls are, are the best method or sea gates that they use in London. And there are places where the natural barriers are the most effective, and there are places where retreat is the most effective. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these things need to be considered, and I'm sure that there will be a lot of new technologies brought to bear. There's a 15-year-old working in a garage somewhere in China who's going to figure out, <laughs> you know, a semi-permeable right. surface that's solar creates solar power and protects, yeah. you know, the, the barriers of our cities. But we don't have that yet. How do you think we're going to pay for all this stuff? And how should we look at it from a state spending standpoint? And how do you do a proper cost-benefit analysis on some of these measures? I think that that is 
it's a profound question. It gets to really what are our values as a society or as a city? What are our priorities? So how much of our federal budget is spent on military interventions in the Middle East, largely to defend our supply of oil? Mm. Can we reorient that priority to protecting our country from climate change and rebuilding our economy in a renewable way? The amount of money that this country spends on incarcerating more people than any other country in the world, proportionately, can we reconsider that priority and look at other means of dealing with drug addiction and homelessness and mental illness? So I, I don't think we can do it unless we reprioritize. And we haven't been doing a particularly good job at protecting our cities and our country from climate change. Looking forward, if denial of climate change is the best way of protecting it, which seems to be the incoming administration's view, we're not coming into an era where safeguarding and adaptation is our priority. Hmm. Donald Trump's winning the presidency seems to have seems destined to have some far-reaching effects on energy transition in the U.S., and I don't think it'll stop them by any means. In fact, I'm reasonably confident that state-level efforts, even those that were initiated to meet the requirements of the Clean Power Plan, will probably continue ahead, just because they make good economic sense. But what are your expectations here on the future of energy transition for the U.S.? My own view is that there's no question that from a pure economic point of view, and any kind of rational, dispassionate view, the renewable future is by far the healthiest and the cheapest and the best for us. That doesn't mean that we're going to get it. Was it 1976 that uh, General Motors killed the electric car? Mm. The most rational technology and, and social organization is not necessarily the one that prevails. And my concern is that we have this obviously hugely strong trend toward renewables, and it's a global trend as well as in the United States. On the other hand, we can't forget that it's, the growth of this industry in this country has been largely a creature of, of certain legal structures and frameworks, the federal tax incentives, state policies that have provided financial support for in the nascent industry in its early days. And these things can be reversed. And not only, because we're not only seeing changes at the federal level, we're seeing a lot of changes on the state level mm-hmm. that could end up really eroding the political support for these technologies. So I'm possibly more pessimistic than most of the people who are here. Interesting. Because I think that it isn't, you know, the merit is undeniable, but that doesn't always win out yeah. in this country. Yeah. So to me, the lesson from that is we should not relax our vigilance and we should look toward all the opportunities to build popular support for renewable technologies and on the issues of climate change and uh, and be good citizens in our communities, be in our schools, be, be educators, uh, be advocates. Uh, I don't mean this in a partisan way, but be, because I think there's support for this technology across all parties. I do too. Yeah. But I think we can't relax. I think this is a very dangerous moment for us. I agree. I agree. So you've seen the regulatory sausage-making process for utilities uh, up close and personal in New York, particularly with respect to how regulators balance costs and benefits with industry and political considerations. Can you share some insights from your experience that might be useful to regulators in other states, particularly some things to do or not to do? You know, I survived a lot of different governors and PSC chairs in my term. I've seen a lot of them come and go. And 
I will say that I think that Audrey Zibelman's leadership in the RIV process has been, you know, it's been an extraordinary blessing for New York State mm. and for the country. And uh, I think this has really been, she didn't only have the vision and the ideas, she also had the determination and the skills to transform them into a reality and to take, you know, an organization of about 500 people and essentially bend it to her will, which is extraordinarily powerful. Yeah. Uh, and tremendous stamina. It must be just a... She's done an incredible job yeah. uh, and really day and night, mm-hmm. you know. And Rev is only, of course, part of what chairing a public service commission in a big state entails. There's right. also its daily work and, you know, a blackout or a strike or, you know, a or crisis. Super Storm Sandy, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So my primary takeaway from the last few years in New York is think big. Mm-hmm. Don't, uh, you know, because I think all government tends to be kind of day to day the crisis of the day and and commissions are reactive by nature like courts yeah. you have the cases and the and the disputes that are brought to you to resolve right but i think looking taking a long-term policy look where is this industry in the state going is an obligation of regulators and something that they can do they do have the power to do it and they don't often exercise it and once you flesh out where what you think the direction should be you will find that you You'll get responses. It'll be honed and changed by the responses you get from all the parts of the industry and consumers and environmental advocates and and uh, labor and cities and and so on. Once you have a vision, you can start developing a blueprint for how to accomplish it. And I think that it, it turns out that that can be done and can be really organized and inspired by the work of a regulatory commission. So I'm getting the idea that strong leadership is key. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate in New York that the governor also supported this vision and was has convinced right. that it was the right direction. So that's made it obviously possible for the, for the vision to proceed as well as it has. Yeah. Well, I think we can leave it there. Thank you, Eleanor. It's really been a privilege to have you on the uh, it's show. It's lovely to see you again and uh, wonderful to have this conversation. I hope we continue it. Thanks. I'd like that. Great. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.